Donald Trump and Bibi Netanyahu had a big announcement of a new peace deal. Is there any there there? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. It's being promoted as an historic breakthrough to further peace in the Middle East. Somehow, I'm reminded of the declaration by Henry Kissinger that declared peace is at hand just before the election of 1972. That, I believe, was the original election-related October surprise. Of course, it was a lie. The war once again escalated dramatically. But it did the job it was intended to do. It helped get Nixon re-elected. While the new, much-ballyhooed, alleged peace deal between Bahrain and the state of Israel obviously does not raise hopes of our boys returning from an unwinnable war, our returning guest, Major Danny Sherson, describes the agreement as part of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's diplomatic roadshow. This is the diplomat who stunningly broke with all tradition by blatantly politicizing the office and speaking at the RNC convention. From a foreign country at that, Is this Bahrain-Israel a feather in the cap for President Trump? Is the deal a significant breakthrough in the 70-year bloody struggle between Israel and its Arab neighbors? Is this a case where, much as Americans deride the president, maybe he does deserve foreign policy credit? What is the real meaning of what our guest calls an arranged marriage, Bahrain and Israel's peculiar peace, in quotes? What is the reality behind the self-congratulating White House ceremony? What does the new agreement actually do since Israel and Bahrain have been allies for several years? Back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive to shed light on the realities behind the fanfare is Danny Searson, a retired U.S. Army officer, contributing editor at Antiwar.com, senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and director of the soon-to-launch Eisenhower Media Network, which I'm curious about. His work has appeared in the New York Times, L.A. Times, The Nation, Huffington Post, The Hill, Salon, The American Conservative, Mother Jones, Shear Post, and, of course, Tom Dispatch. And if we had an ideal administration, our guest Danny Sherson would be Secretary of Defense. But I don't think that's likely to happen. It probably pays better than you're getting now, Danny. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Trump is obviously trying to switch attention from such electoral inconveniences as the climate fires, the pandemic, the racial injustice, etc. You say we should not be too impressed by this. First off, I don't think most Americans really know much about Bahrain. Tell us, please, about that nation and its ruling structure. Well, thanks for having me, Bert, uh, especially to talk about something that I think is it is an important issue. Uh, it just isn't important for the reasons that the Trump administration is billing it. Uh, Bahrain is a very small and very peculiar country. So it is uh, highly urbanized. It's uh, about the size of the D.C. metro area, not even quite as large and uh, has about as many people as the borough of the Bronx in New York City. Uh, it is, as I describe it, a sort of floating Saudi aircraft carrier in the Persian Gulf. Um, it's almost shaped like one. And it mm-hmm. is uh, rented out to the American Sixth Fleet, the, uh, the Middle East U.S. Navy fleet. And Saudi Arabia has for a long time, but especially since the Arab Spring, which uh, I can get into at some point, has had 
enormous control over Bahrain, especially their foreign policy. So in a sense, this is a vassal state of their you know, kingdom cousins across the way. Uh, Bahrain is unique in that it is uh, ruled by, uh, since I think the 18th century, uh, it's been ruled by the Al-Khalifa family, which is a uh, Sunni royalty, uh, despite the fact that of its Arab citizen population, uh, the significant majority are Shia, which makes it one of really only three countries in the Middle East, uh, four in the greater Middle East, if you include Azerbaijan, that have a Shia majority. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, like many of the Gulf states, there are uh, about 45% of the population is South Asian migrant workers mm-hmm. uh, who do a lot of the worst work. And so the, the, the bottom line here is we have a, a deal that essentially just seals a status quo in that Israel has already maintained back channel security and other relations with almost all of these Gulf states, uh, including Bahrain. And the reality is this is sort of an arranged marriage forced on Bahrain by uh, not just Secretary Pompeo, but the Gulf states of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, who have long controlled policy making within Bahrain. And of course, it leaves out the Palestinians. And as you say, it's a minority rule place. So you you talked about it. You mentioned that uh, you saw it as, as kind of a uh, medieval monarchy. Why, why do you say that? Well, most of these Gulf states, you know, they are ruled by autocrats through a royal familial line. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an outdated, uh, archaic formulation. Uh, each of them is a little different. Uh, some are more theocratic than others, right? So, of course, uh, the Saudi uh, Wahhabists and the sort of uh, marriage of convenience and power between the uh, Islamist, uh, the state Islamism in Saudi Arabia, as well as the royal family, the Al Saud family, uh, is an extreme example. But they all have these, you know, familial monarchies, um, somewhat or very, depending on the country. Uh, positive towards a very fundamentalist and uh, mm. really seventh century sort of Salafi okay. uh, Islam, this idea of going back to the founders and their way. And I say they masquerade as modern countries because they have iPhones and because the wealthy Sunnis drive around in, you know, Maseratis. But uh, let us not let us not mistake these for mm. uh, countries that are democracies or in line with our purported values by any means. Yeah. Yeah, and it's I, I find it interesting that, if I'm correct, that the three countries, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and Israel, have, have had commercial relationships for a long time. So I wonder, is this does this change anything? Is it just the establishment of more formal diplomatic relationships while keeping somewhat similar uh, powers in power? Well, I mean, that's part of it is that this is, formalizing the existent situation where there's been ties already, a commercial, but especially national security intelligence. Uh, so this uh-huh. isn't really a win in any practical sense. But what I do think is profound about it, or uh, at least important about it, is that if it's going to have an effect, it's going to be a negative effect on Palestinian statehood or civil rights. And what I mean by that is that uh, the 2002 
uh, Arab League fronted by the Saudis plan for peace with Israel. Their proposal for peace basically said that there would be a normalization of relations with Israel from the Gulf states, really from the entire Arab League, if they would actually follow through on the roadmap to legitimate Palestinian statehood. So these deals, if they continue to spread, and Trump might not be wrong about that. I mean, there may be other countries, especially in the Gulf, that sign on. Mm. But all it does is it means that that Arab League deal, which is itself a real compromise, uh, is off the table, essentially. Uh, Israel has no incentive to uh, actually create a viable Palestinian state. So that's why I call this the peculiar Palestinian peace that doesn't involve Palestinians. (laughs) They've been sold out. Their leaders aren't wrong about that. And they have called this already a, a stab in the back. And I, I wonder about the uh, the Palestinian leadership. They seem to be uh, uh, divided oftentimes. Um, that, uh, you know, there's the uh, former PLO, the, uh, the moderate uh, leaders. There's Palestinian leadership. There are moderates and groups like Hamas, which did win the election for leadership of Gaza. Uh, but what about the Palestinians? What what have you heard from them? I haven't heard much at all. They've, they've certainly been intentionally left out of the picture. Oh, they're definitely left out of the picture, yes, by design. Uh, well, I mean, listen, uh, I am very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, but I think we have to describe the world as it is and be intellectually consistent. And the reality is that the divisions and weakness and within the Palestinian Authority corruption of the Palestinian leadership as such, that they haven't done themselves any favors. So while I don't blame them for their situation by any means, uh, they have not been able to speak with one voice. They have lost most of their influence in the Arab capitals, uh, who have sold them out. Uh, Mm -hmm. But what is interesting is that Hamas and the PLO, or the former PLO, the Palestinian Authority, uh, both of them are speaking with one voice on this. Uh, I read the statements official from both groups, and they are remarkably similar. They could have had the same ghostwriter. Uh, well, it's, it's interesting when, they, uh, when the two factions uh, unite on something, maybe this will help bring them together. Well, I mentioned Nixon earlier. The, Nixon was our best anti-war organizer, and maybe this will be the best organizing uh, uh, step for the Palestinians that uh, have been you know, disagreeing amongst themselves for a while. It's nothing like uh, adversity to pull people together. Well, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, have become the third and fourth Arab countries to officially recognize Israel. I don't. Who are the first and second? And what about them unites the four? Right. So uh, the first was Egypt under oh, yes. Sadat. So that was the uh, oh, right. you know the Camp David Accords under Jimmy Carter. Yes. Uh, that was uh, you know an autocratic. Uh, but not theocratic and not a monarchy. So that was Sadat. And then in 1994, so about 15 years later, was the normalization with the Kingdom of Jordan. And of course, the important term there is kingdom. So while Jordan is a more moderate state than the Gulf states, uh, what I think all four have in common is that the people, right, the, the peoples, the populations of these states were not consulted because they do not live in free societies where their voice matters. And the reason that's important is because it demonstrates that these leaders of these uh, autocratic or monarchical states, they knew full well they could have never made Uh. these pieces if they were put to a vote because 
even though Arabs are losing the memory of 1948 and 1967 by many accounts and polls, mm. the peoples of these states, including Bahrain, by the way, uh, are opposed to peace with Israel unless there's a Palestinian state follow through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's been brought up many times for many, many different wars that if the people were involved and had say and decisions about going to war, well, guess what? There'd be a lot fewer wars. There'd be, I think, possibly better uh, solutions and maybe real solutions. Now, two weeks before the agreement was reached, the king of Bahrain had rejected the deal. What were his objections, and do you, what explains his turnaround? Do you know? Well, we don't know for sure, uh, but all we can do is speculate. You know, when they announced the normalization, it was very interestingly and instructively without any explanation as to why there was the turnabout, because I believe the Reuters story first broke uh, on August 25th or 26th, saying that Pompeo had essentially been rejected by the king, who said that he was, you know, dedicated to the notion of the statement from their official media was that the king is dedicated to a Palestinian state. Uh, The implication being that we won't normalize with Israel until there is one. Uh, which would have been a rejection of Pompeo's overture. And he was there in person with the king. Uh, We find out just two weeks later, a little over two weeks later, that now there is a a fourth Arab state normalizing with Israel, which leads one to believe that pressure was applied. And that is purposely passive. But I can uh, remove the passive voice by uh, implying that, and, and almost for certainty, I believe, there was pressure applied by the Saudis and the Emiratis. Uh, The Emiratis probably wanted someone else to sign on to a deal they've already made. The Emiratis, of course, were part of the uh, binational Saudi Emirati force that sent troops over the causeway to put down the Shia majority Arab Spring revolts in 2011. And the Saudis have not signed on to normalization yet, although there's a lot of uh, hints from the Trump administration that they shall be one of the next states. But my my sense is that even if the Saudis aren't ready to sign on to this just yet, they needed to throw a bone to Mr. Pompeo uh, because there was probably some transactional threats made. Uh, And why not throw up Bahrain, which counts technically as the fourth state, even though, again, it's, you know, the size of the Bronx in the D.C. metro area. Well, it does kind of make me wonder. There's there's one of the things that these states have in common is they don't like Iran. Saudi Arabia uh, clearly... uh, they, they seem to really uh, very strongly dislike Iran. I wonder, you know, what about this deal, if this may actually uh, not just be not peace, but a kind of, uh, and you know, steps toward a setup for a war on Iran between the Saudis and their buddies and Iran. And uh, what, what do you think about that? The uh, Iranian elephant is certainly in the room yeah. on this deal. Uh, what ties the Gulf states to Israel in many cases is a shared fear of Iran. And while I don't want to make too much of it because some of these Gulf states are practical and have uh, ties to Iran under the table, uh-huh. they are scared of Iran. They are competing for influence and uh, control of the Gulf. But he, I think this is what is sort of important about this is um, what does – B.B. Netanyahu in Israel, but especially the Gulf state monarchs, uh, most fear. Well, they fear a 
renormalization or steps towards normalization through putting the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal back in place. Mm. So Joe Biden has said uh, he'll go back to that, right? And I and I think really any candidate uh, would, you know, put the Iran deal back in place, which isn't exactly normalization of relations with the United no. States, but a step towards, uh, you know, lessening those, you know, tensions. And and the Gulf states panicked about that. And so did Netanyahu. Of course, he came to Congress to lambast the sitting President Obama. So in other words, uh, if Trump or Pompeo or Pompeo goes to Bahrain or goes to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia and says, we need some wins to get Trump reelected, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You could see the Saudis saying, OK, well, we'll think about the deal. But in the meantime, you could have Bahrain, right? We'll feed them up because they do. I mean, they prefer a Trump administration that's going to be hawkish on Iran to a Biden administration, which isn't a dove administration, but right. would probably be better on Iran. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with uh, retired U.S. Army Major Denny Searson about what he has called an arranged marriage, Bahrain and Israel's peculiar peace, and the peace being in quotations. And, you know, Israel claims to be the only democracy in the region, and clearly the Saudi uh, government is not, they don't even pretend to be democratic. The Saudi royal family rules that country, and its form of Muslim is Wahhabism, uh, or Wahhabism, I guess it is, uh, which is known to be quite severe against dissent. What, what do we know? And my, my sense is that the Saudi royal family is really concerned about the people having an actual voice. What do we know about the Saudi methods for dealing with dissent and and their fear of their own people, perhaps? Well, uh, so Bahrain is interesting first because Bahrain has this Shia majority and the king, the Sunni king, the Sunni royal family is terrified of their own population. So that's why the Saudis and the UAE came in to you know, forcefully put them down when they were in the streets peacefully yeah. protesting. But the Saudis also have a uh, significant minority of Shia. And uh, they're about 20% of the population, and they mostly live in the east of the kingdom. And oh, by the way, as Shias are apt to do, it seems, by uh, luck, they live on a lot of the oil fields. Yeah. Okay, so the same case in Iraq. And that's really inconvenient <laughs> that they happen to live where the oil is. Uh, and so the Saudis are terrified of that Shia minority. They have always seen it as potentially like a third column or you know, a sleeper for Iran, which they are not. But mm-hmm. this is the fear mongering. The way the Saudis have handled this sense uh, across the board, but especially among the Shia, is up to and including. I mean, so mass jailings, but mass executions. Yeah. OK, so we're talking within the last five, six years the Saudis have executed like 57 people in a single day, you know, via beheading. And a lot of them are just Shia clerics who didn't even take up arms. Uh, so now it, the Saudis are pressing down or suppressing dissent across the board, any sort of rumblings of, you know, either democracy or just mm-hmm. uh, expanded civil liberties. But they are especially concerned about their Shia minority. So you can see then why when there were significant Arab Spring protests in 2011 in the early spring in Bahrain, which were fronted mainly by the Shia majority there, uh, Saudi Arabia would see that as a threat to their internal Shia, because if the 
the right. Bahrainis were able to gain power just across the channel 15 miles over, then maybe there would be some restiveness in their own Shia. So, this, you know, what, in other words, Israel and America are making deals with some of the most autocratic human rights violating countries in the entire Middle East. And then they're putting a bow on it and saying, what a great piece that the you know beacon of American freedom has made. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting how often uh, there's one picture painted, which is not at all the reality. That seems to uh, be a long and uh, powerful thread in this administration, not totally unlike other administrations, but this one in particular. And speaking of the Saudis, it was the Saudi prince who was believed to have ordered the rather brutal killing of reporter Jamal Khashoggi, who worked for the Washington Post. Until your article, I had never heard of the al-Khalifas in Bahrain. Is there a kinship with the Saudis? And we already know that the, that the uh, Saudis do not treat their Shia particularly well. Tell us about this this Al Khalifa. That that's the ruling family. Is that right? That's right. The Al Khalifa family has ruled uh, Bahrain for for quite some time. Uh, they uh, they've been ruling there since essentially the early 18th century. Um, they uh, they are actually originally from the uh, the east of Saudi Arabia. Uh, then they kind of traveled around a bit like old school Arab nomads, right? They were in Kuwait, then they were in the northern part of uh, Qatar before they uh -huh. uh, settled in Bahrain in the early 18th century. So um, they've essentially been ruling Bahrain as, uh, I mean, at this point they've been there a while, but they're, they are sort of outsiders and uh, their population mm -hmm. is obviously from the different tribes, uh, one, you know, different tradition. And uh, they have very close ties to the uh, to the Saudi royal family, uh, and they they always have. And uh, that relationship is really one truly of a vassal. I mean, it's uh, it's mm. almost a subset, a minor subset of the Saudi rule, ruling family. Uh, and uh, this relationship is such that the Saudis are their big brothers, their protectors, their benefactors, and when necessary, their economic bailout financiers. One can see why Trump likes those guys so much. Speaking of liking Saudi Arabia and the rulers, there's this humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen that has drawn outrage from across the entire planet. It's a civil war fueled by the Saudis using American bombs, and the people of Yemen know that. What about Bahrain and the UAE? Are they involved in that as well? And and some people have talked about that as kind of a proxy war. I'm not sure I see it as that, but a lot of the people of Yemen are, are suffering very much. And there's that's sort of a, uh, a, a playing board for fights between the Saudis and Iran, perhaps. What about Bahrain and the UAE on this uh, Yemen issue? Uh, so Bahrain hasn't, um, you know, has not committed uh, troops and uh, been as actively intervening in Yemen as the UAE and the Saudis uh, are. But of uh, course, they're certainly not coming to the you know, aid, uh, even rhetorically or diplomatically, despite having you know, a Shia majority and the Houthis, who are the enemy of the Saudis and the right. Emiratis in Yemen, are uh, a different kind of Shia, but the same general flavor of Shia. So the Sunni monarchs of Bahrain have essentially fallen in line, but they haven't been 
uh, actively involved militarily. The Emiratis and the Saudis have uh, provided mostly air power, uh, some ground troops, although they tend to use uh, Sudanese mercenaries mm. uh, mm-hmm. from over in Africa mm-hmm. and uh, also local Yemeni proxies. And uh, they haven't been willing to really take very high casualties with their own troops, but they have blockaded and bombarded the Yemeni people uh, to such an extent that they have created the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe, yes. the uh, largest outbreak of cholera, uh, 85,000, and that's an old number. They've essentially stopped counting. 85,000 children have already starved to death. Uh, we don't know the exact casualty count in Yemen since the war kicked off in 2015, but estimates range from a low of 100,000 to a high of uh, you know, 250,000 Yemenis who have been killed. And uh, the vast majority of the population is internal refugee and on some form of humanitarian aid just to survive. So here we have this peace deal between powers that pff, they were at peace beforehand, but there's a real war awful war going on in Yemen, and it has nothing to do with that. <sighs> yeah, foreign policy, interesting stuff. And sometimes I do wonder about the old Ottoman Empire. It was huge. It broke up with the First World War, and there were a lot of uh, tribes and nations within the Ottoman Empire, but I don't think they were fighting each other as much as they are now, countries within the former Ottoman Empire. But back to the you know, 2020, the twin normalization agreements that Trump quickly claimed credit for represent for the president nothing short of a, quote, previously unthinkable regional transformation. That's his words. What what is the, I'm sure somebody else wrote it for him because they're big words after all. What is the political and economic shape of this previously unthinkable regional transformation? What does it mean for the people of those countries, this new transformation? Not much. I mean, the uh, these deals are being sold uh, within these countries as uh, beneficial to the people, that the normalized relations with the Israelis is going to bring a whole lot of you know, jobs and money and trade. Um, some of that was already kind of happening below the surface, but unofficially, uh, the structure economically of these societies is, uh, you know, it, 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 the disparity is intense. I mean, the, the people, especially the people who do the actual work, some of whom are, many of whom are migrants from South Asia and in all of these countries, right. uh, they're not going to see any genuine benefit from this. And of course, the Palestinians who are unmentioned, I mean, they're almost right. unmentioned in the statement, uh, they clearly aren't going to be, I mean, if anything, they lose out here because it normalizes the de facto situation of occupation on the ground. But, you know, Trump's lauding of this uh, and, and all his lackeys, you know, over Fox News and in the administration, that this is somehow so special. It, I mean, if you almost wonder if they know and are just cynical that they know it's not that. Because, mm. again, it just really ratifies a status quo. These countries have already been willing to work with Israel uh, and they just hide it a little bit. And who are they hiding it from? Their own people. <laughs> Because it is not popular to deal with an Israel that is in violation of numerous, almost countless uh, aspects of international law regarding the Palestinians. The people still have sympathy to, for the Palestinians, and uh, they're hot, they've hidden it from their people. Now they're coming out and saying, we're, we, we're not even going to hide it anymore. So that's the only transformation uh, to me. I don't, I don't think that this has any 
real effect on Mideast peace. If anything, like you said, it actually could heighten the tension with Iran. And also, I think that the Palestinians will feel more desperate and the chance of yeah. armed resistance growing is going to improve. Probably so. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. There's never a lack of things to talk about. We're talking about uh, the arranged marriage, Bahrain and Israel's peculiar peace, the one that uh, Trump is uh, trumpeting so much between uh, Israel and Bahrain. And uh, Nora Erekat, I hope I pronounced that right. She's a human rights attorney. Uh, who's been on NBC and other shows, and she's got a quote relative to this. While Trump may be looking to score points as a peacemaker for his presidential bid, what he's doing is simply providing the military, financial, and diplomatic infrastructure to further repress popular struggles for democracy and freedom in the Middle East. She goes on to say that the agreement between Israel and Bahrain reflects a geopolitical alliance between repressive regimes that expands the U.S. sphere of influence in the Middle East rather than indicates a cessation of violence or an easing of oppression. So perhaps, you know, when, when Trump calls this something new, a, a realignment, a, 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 tra a previously unimaginable transformation, there's been an interest for in Washington for a long time in transforming the Middle East and making it something different. That, this precedes uh, uh, Trump's term. Uh, there have been... Uh, 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 Republicans who have uh, uh, wanted to do this for quite some time. So what are your thoughts on what uh, Ms. Araka had to say? I, I think she's dead on. And uh, what she's sort of describing here is that despite Trump's rhetoric of how massive of a transformation this is, uh, in reality, it reflects the existing state for quite some time. So that is, that America's closest allies and Israel's only allies in the Middle East tend to be the most repressive, autocratic, and human yeah. rights-violating states. Because any of the countries that have even vague input from their people okay, tend to be unwilling to make peace with Israel. So under the Bush administration, I mean, think about how far we've gone and how we define transformation. Under the Bush tenure, it was that we're going to bring freedom and democracy. And we are right. going to truly transform the Middle East. Well, that hadn't worked out. And then Obama kind of went this middle road. And now you've got Trump who, you know, he's so transactional. And uh, in one mm -hmm. sense, he's, he's, he's not. I mean, what he's calling transformation is just that now we've given up on all that. We've given up on any vague notion that we can bring any real sort of, you know, democracy at the bayonet to the Middle East. So now he's just like, well, we may as well make deals and officialize our dealing with these tyrants. And it's uh, going to help the military industrial complex uh, in our country as well as in Israel. And let's just deal with the world as it is. And so some people might say that's almost refreshing, but I think it's also rather obscene when you look at it. <laughs> I would say so. And I'm, uh, let me just guess here. Are there advanced U.S.-made weapon systems possibly on the table? Do you think they're being discussed at all? And I wonder what those weapon systems might be a lot of money. Well, of course we found out it was uh, sort of leaked uh, and uh, Trump and Netanyahu eventually had to admit it uh, right after the UAE deal was announced. Uh, it comes, it comes out through a leak that, well, there was a back channel quid pro quo with the Emiratis that, you know, part of the benefit to them of officializing the relations with Israel is that they would get the F-35. 
which uh, was problematic because it caused a huge outcry in Israel among the population. So mm. while Netanyahu would probably win an election by most accounts if he ran again tomorrow, uh, the Israeli people know he's corrupt yeah. and are very, very worried about having this edge. Uh, you know, they, they're supposed to have this technological edge over all the other Arab states. And so part of that has always included that the U.S. would not sell, you know, fifth generation mm. or whatever up to fighters to the Arab states. Uh, and Israel would always have like one generation up on pretty much every weapon system. So mm -hmm. the population in Israel actually kind of freaked out. Uh, even normally fairly supportive papers in Israel were publishing op-eds saying this is terrible that Trump is going to sell F-35s to the UAE because they don't really trust the UAE or any Arab state. And they don't want anybody to have the same technological ability of them. Now, a lot of that's overblown because the F-35 is a boondoggle program anyway. Mm. But nevertheless, it shows that there is a very transactional aspect to this that is beneficial mm -hmm. to, let's just say, Lockheed and Raytheon. And mm -hmm. I heard, I don't know if it's true, but I heard that our Secretary of Defense was a lobbyist for Raytheon for a number of years. And so you see how this revolving door works. And of course he was. Always great to have the military-industrial complex run foreign policy. And, you know, we used to have a State Department. That's long gone, I guess. But uh, now, I'm not even sure what an F-35 is. That's a, what, long-range bomber? Is that it? Or, or tell us about the F-35. Right, so the, the F-35 is the, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fighter bomber. Fighter. Uh, it is the, uh, it's made by Lockheed. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, you know, single-seat, single-engine kind of stealth aircraft. Uh, supposed to be able to do a whole lot of things, you know, uh, electronic warfare capabilities, surveillance, reconnaissance. It could fight other fighters in air combat. It can also mm. bomb. Uh, the reality is, of course, that the uh, F-35 has had technical issues from the start. It's cost enormous amounts of money over budget. Mm -hmm. And uh, nevertheless, everyone wants it, right? <laughs> or at least a lot of these states want to buy it because it is, you know, one of the the highest generation fighter. So I think it entered service uh, in the Marine Corps first in 2015, uh, and it's supposed to stay in place uh, well into, uh, you know, I think the 2040s. Wow. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, most accounts that I've read demonstrate that Israel's panic about the UAE having the F-35 is a, a bit overblown because the fighter is not as transformational in terms of yeah. military projection that's made out to be. So Israel maintains its military superiority, I'm guessing. And if that's true, what, what is in it for Israel's uh, Bibi Netanyahu? He's, he's been in a, a bit of trouble lately, but uh, corruption doesn't seem to matter here or there. So what is in it for, for Netanyahu? And does this maintain Israel's, like, solid military superiority that we've seen since the 67 war. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, Netanyahu and Trump, I mean, they have so much in common. Uh, cosmetically, yes. they both have sons who like to tweet anti-Semitic, believe it or not, and racist uh, retweets. Okay. Uh, so they've got ridiculous sons. Uh, they're both <laughs> under plenty of pressure for corruption and scandals at home. And they both feel like they need political wins. And so I think for Netanyahu, the idea is it's a, this is a distraction from his own indictments uh -huh. okay, on a variety of corruption. 
But I think that more than that, uh, Netanyahu's base, to the extent that he has one, wants to formalize or at least make de facto permanent the occupation of the West Bank right. and the settlement of you know Jewish citizens in the West Bank, the expansion of the settlements. And so one way to accomplish that is to pry as many Arab states uh, away from any notion of Palestinian statehood. Because if we can make it so that there's no external pressure on Israel to provide a viable Palestinian state, then we can essentially formalize the uh, occupation and settlement, permanent sort of takeover of the West Bank. So that's why this is such a sellout and a stab in the back of the Palestinians. I think that's what's in it for Netanyahu short and long term. Wow. So, yeah, he, he's talked about uh, actually annexing the West Bank and Gaza, which has been called the world's largest open-air prison. Uh, th- this will help solidify that uh, control. Well, that that's interesting. And I wonder, you know, about... There's a lot of Palestinian inhabitants in the state of Israel, uh, and Israel has been called over and over and over again the only democracy in the Middle East. I wonder about, I mean, the people of Israel. I'm sure there's a lot of disagreement within Israel, like there is here in the U.S. What does this agreement say about Israel's commitment to democracy and whether or not it's still a democracy at all? Your thoughts? Well, of course, uh, I think that. Israel also masquerades as a democracy when it's, uh, in part, an ethnocracy. Uh, if you look at the citizenship laws and the uh-huh. overt statements by Netanyahu recently saying that this this is not a state for all of its inhabitants. This is a state for the Jewish population. And uh, also, while the apartheid term is uh, very polarizing and sort of a third rail, I'm no longer afraid to use it right. with regard to the second-class status of the Palestinians in the occupied territory, and then even the de facto second-class status of the Arab-Palestinian habits of uh, Israel, which is about 20% of the, within the Green Line, within the actual official boundaries of Israel. But I think one of the things to keep in mind here is that Bibi Netanyahu is, a, is an extortionist. This was an extortionist foreign policy. And what I mean by that is, look at what he did. He threatened formal annexation of the West Bank, yes, and then didn't even permanently take it off the table, but temporarily took it off the table uh, for the quid pro quo, apparently, of UAE and now Bahrain normalization. So essentially, ah. he said, I will officialize my, uh, my uh, breaking of international law, and then when someone says, okay, sorry, don't do that, don't do that, uh, we'll make normalized relations with you, then he just says, well, okay, we'll keep the de facto occupation. And oh, by the way, he even Mm. says out loud, I'm not permanently taking this off the table. So, I mean, in other words, he threatened something, didn't even fully remove the threat, and then these Gulf states surrendered. But I think in reality, it's not even that because the leadership of those Gulf states never really cared about the Palestinians in the first place. So Mm. this is not even about them, but that's just the narrative. But it works. It shows that extortion works. Yeah, extortion works. And that reminds me of uh, President Trump. He's always boasting that he's a deal maker. Well, I'm, I can't help but think that he'd like to be the same kind of extortionist, successful extortionist that Netanyahu is. They certainly do have their similarities. So there's this one side of the equation, the Saudis, Bahrain, the UAE, all these uh, medieval monarchies, basically. And then there's Iran. Does it, I mean, Iran has supporters in Yemen. 
are there other is the Middle East uh, kind of dividing between the Iranian sphere and the Saudi sphere? And who might be on Iran's side? Well, there's a lot of talk, and there has been since 2004, uh, when the King of Jordan first said it, of a Shia crescent that is creeping mm. across the Middle East. And uh, the notion is that uh, Iran's kind of claws are coming across the Middle East through these kind of, uh, you know, insider sleepers of the Shia minorities, the, right, the Shia minorities within these countries. Uh, but a lot of it is overblown. I mean, it misunderstands that uh, many of these Shias are also nationalists and they don't want to be controlled by Iran. Uh, it misunderstands that there are a variety of different types of Shias, fivers, seveners, and twelvers, first hmm. how many imams they believe in. Yeah. Uh, however, however, one thing that we must keep in mind is that if you are a Palestinian right now, uh, the only resistance groups from the outside that are still actively either fighting for you uh, militarily or diplomatically fighting for Palestinian rights are Shia. And so you ask who Iran might also have. Okay, well, the uh, Fiverr Zeta Shias in Yemen are, you know, vaguely friendly with Iran, although that's overblown. That was mostly in response to the Saudi bombing that they went for help mm -hmm. to Iran. Mm. But uh, the Shia... Uh, offshoot, the Alawis, that the uh, the uh, Hafez and Bashar al-Assad family running Syria, uh, they're very connected to Iran, even though they're not exactly Shia. But the most important ally of Iran are the Shia of southern Lebanon, uh, who are very supportive of Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. uh, and Hezbollah, which we label a terrorist organization, right. but mostly attacks military targets, mm -hmm. is really the last external Middle Eastern force that is actively resisting Israel's policy towards the Palestinians. So even though the Palestinians are mostly Sunni, they are finding, and they have found for quite some time, that their only real allies and sort of collaborators in trying to fight Israel come from the Shia, mm. which is very interesting. Yeah, that is. And uh, that, that sort of gives some of the background for this new alleged peace deal, that to put pressure, more, more pressure, which is amazing to me. They've been under so much pressure for so many years on the Palestinians to just basically wipe them out. And, you know, so this, this alleged peace deal uh, threatens the Palestinians even more than they've been threatened before. It's, it's interesting how it just keeps ramping up again and again and again. And we mentioned, of course, the Arab Spring of 2011. There was great hope at the time, especially for the people of Egypt. At least that was my impression, who ousted President Hosni Mubarak. But with the rise to power of el-Sisi, authoritarian rule has apparently returned. The so-called only democracy in the region is the largest recipient of U.S. military aid. What about Egypt? Where, where do they fit in in all this? Well, it's uh, interesting. Of course, Egypt was the first country to make peace uh, with Israel, and uh, they began their talks in the late 70s. Uh, Egypt was kind of the Prize of the Arab Spring, notionally, you know, it's the, the largest Arab country. Uh, it's always kind of been a bit of a bellwether for the Middle East and a leader. Uh, but of course, after toppling Mubarak, uh, who was the strongman like president for life in right. Egypt in 2011, uh, there were elections and the Muslim Brotherhood's candidate won. But, mm -hmm. you know, within two years, the military stepped in and Sisi took over in a straight-up military coup, and then yes. 
you know, uh, had his soldiers shoot down hundreds. We don't even know exactly how many kill hundreds of protesters uh, uh, to his coup. So none of that permanently stopped American aid uh, mm. or the relationship with Israel. And it, it is very important to understand uh, if you want to see how venal the military industrial complex and the defense contractors in America can be, understand that the top recipients of our military aid and military sales tend to be these most autocratic countries. So number one recipient of U.S. military aid is in the world today is Israel. Number two is Egypt. And, you know, on their heels, in terms of weapons sales, at least, are Jordan, you know, the Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And so there is a direct, you know, connection between countries that are willing to make peace with Israel and countries that receive American military largesse. So there has always been a quid pro quo. Trump's just more overt about it, I believe. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I wonder sometimes, you know, there's all this talk about Russia interfering in our election. Well, they certainly have. Isn't, doesn't Israel, the Israel lobby, don't they interfere in our elections as well? I don't know why people aren't talking about that. But they, you know, obviously they, or at least Netanyahu, prefers to have Trump in there than, uh, than Biden, who, as you say, would probably redo the, uh, you know, open up again the, uh, the deal with Iran to prevent nuclear weapons being created, which I always thought was a good thing. But... Uh, it, it's just, uh, and, and you ask regarding Israel, why would a society supposedly so free, open, and stridently secular, yet expressly Jewish, as Israel, seek settlements with states that promote the most intolerant brands of, and often most anti-Semitic, Islamism, both at home and abroad? You ask the question, what's your response right. to that? Well, I mean, there's always been a deep cynicism uh, to Israeli leadership. Um, you know, on the one hand, they were, they were always complaining about uh, anti-Semitism, and anti-Semitism was a real force in the world historically and today even. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, a lot of times that's used to squelch any sort of critique from the outside, because if you right. criticize, for example, the occupation or their war on Lebanon, then you must be an anti-Semite. It's right. very dangerous. Right. Well, they do sort of the same thing in their diplomatic relations. So they'll say that anyone who doesn't make peace with them wants to wipe them off the map and is anti-Semitic and exterminationist towards Jews. But then at the same time, they'll make peace with anybody uh, who they think it will benefit them, even if they are some of the most intolerant and Islamist regimes, because the reality is Israel knows that its position, militarily at least, is fairly strong and isn't truly worried about being wiped into the sea. Uh, because after all, what we have to remember is Israel has a not-so-secret since the 60s nuclear weapons yes. program that includes maybe, you know, 100 or 200 nuclear weapons. They're the only nuclear power in the Middle East. So they don't admit to it. They right. neither confirm nor deny, but everyone knows they have it. So, I mean, th this is a hyperpower in the Middle East. Oh, wow. But there's also the power of the people, at least in theory. We like to believe that us uh, innocents and naive people. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with a uh, return guest, uh, retired U.S. Army Major Danny Sherson, who wrote an article called Arranged Marriage, Bahrain and Israel's Peculiar Peace. Now, this quote made quite an impression. You say that in 2016, Israel's defense minister said that if he had to pick between ISIS and Iran on Israel's borders, he'd choose ISIS every time. 
What? Why would he say that? Well, it, it's uh, on the surface. It's remarkable. I mean, the uh, ISIS of the orange jumpsuits and the, the headings, right? And the Islamic State that's going to retrace the Ottoman Empire and be even larger and go all the way into Europe. Yeah. Uh, on, one, on one end, you would say, how could Israel not see that as the greatest threat? On the other hand, I'd point to this like cynicism within Israel, but also this alarmism about Iran and its pre- supposed pretensions and ca- capacity to threaten them. And so what they're saying with that statement, what the defense minister was saying, and it really was a staggering statement, was that he sees Iran as a bigger threat. And so by Iran being on his border in Syria, he means, you know, through its proxies of Hezbollah, who also went to help the Assad regime in Syria. He means uh, through the Iranian troops, Revolutionary Guards that went to support the Assad regime. Uh, what I think it tells us is that uh, Israel is very calculating. Uh, it is uh, it has complex uh, foreign policy relations with other countries. And if it deems that Iran is the bigger threat, it is even willing to sort of maybe not support right. ISIS, of course, but to uh, almost hope that the Assad regime comes down, even if that means the empowerment of these Islamist forces. But I would argue that Israel would come to rue that day had that come to pass, because if one thinks that ISIS wouldn't be coming for Israel, they misunderstand ISIS. That's for sure. Yeah, they were not nice guys. I think we can all agree on that. Now, President Trump has put his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, in charge of Middle East policy. What do we know about his priorities? It seems odd to me that he would do that, but... What, what do we know about Jared Kushner and what he's up to? Well, yeah, the, the nepotism here, of course, is amazing. Uh, it's not hidden. No, the, 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 the Trump family, uh, you know, using the son-in-law with no expertise in the Middle East. I mean, his expertise on the Middle East is just that he's had, you know, financial uh, investments and is uh, extremely close to folks like the ambassador to Israel and the Trump uh. administration who are all tied to the settlement enterprise and, you know, linked into the Israeli military industrial complex. So, you know, his real qualifications for the job, besides being the son-in-law of the president, are in fact that, you know, the this, the idea that the United States is an honest broker at this point in any Mideast peace, but especially yeah, right. on Israel, is ludicrous oh, yeah. when you consider the appointments. Anybody who's dealing with Syria policy or especially with Israel policy is so tied into the Israel lobby uh, Israel arms sales, and even the Israel settlement enterprise and the mm-hmm. financial side of that, that it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And, and the fact that Jared Kushner is in charge of this is, uh, you know, it's it's worse than the blind leading the blind. It's uh, sort of the cynical and pro-Israel leading American foreign policy. <laughs> yeah, it's not too subtle, I must say. And, and you speculate that the Bahrain deal is probably just a footnote in the fine print of the Trump-Kushner deal of the century. Why do you say that? Why would it be just a footnote? You know, I think it's a fine print in the footnote largely because Bahrain is really such a small country, uh, not all that influential, much more symbolic. I mean, you know, when we say that Bahrain is the fourth country to normalize with Israel, it pales in comparison to the importance of, say, Egypt, you know, with right. its hundred million people and its large military. So I think that uh, this is just uh, this is cosmetic. This is a political sort of pawn, an opportunity to gain points. And uh, this isn't transformational, Mm. either the UAE or especially the Bahrain deal. It it really is just of a piece 
with this, uh, you know, deal of the century notion of Trump that, you know, we're going to get as many of the venal autocrats in the Middle East to normalize with Israel, solidify the military occupation of Palestine, and we're going to call it peace. But it really is a masquerade, by and large. What about Democrats in Washington? We talked about, or at least I talked about, uh, Israeli influence in Washington, AIPAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, very powerful lobby. The Democrats, I I haven't heard anything, just crickets basically there. What have they said about this deal? Have you, have you heard anything? I have not. Very little. Uh, you know, there are rumblings within the progressive wing, and we saw it in some of the uh, primaries yeah. uh, in these congressional districts that – you know, some of the most APAC or Israel supportive Democrats are, are losing in certain districts. And there's definitely a progressive sort of uh, rebellion or a ruminating rebellion within the party. But the establishment of the Democratic Party, which is, you know, really personified by Biden yeah, and his foreign policy, you know, advisors or who will probably be his administration, uh, yes. they've stayed mostly quiet. So like Nancy Pelosi's statement was essentially uh, overall, we hope this means peace and maybe it's good for Trump, but we're afraid it's going to distract him from his COVID response, you know, which just shows that A, Nancy Pelosi is no friend of the Palestinians and B, she sees everything through the lens of how can this help or hurt my party, mm. help or hurt Trump. And uh, she sees it as a political pawn, too. And Biden, last point, you know, his one of his top advisors on foreign policy, Tony Blinken, has said months ago that if Biden becomes president, nothing will essentially change in Israeli relations and we will not hold Israel's feet to the fire over annexation. So, yeah, he'd be better than Trump on a a number of levels. But when it comes to the Israel policy, uh, you know, nothing is going to change. No no Democratic establishment candidate is going to put any real pressure on Israel. And they're not even talking about it. They're not even criticizing this deal in any real way. Yeah, it seems true. This, the, the Israeli lobby has just as much grip on uh, the Democrats. Uh, as Bob Dylan once said, money doesn't talk, it swears. Uh, and uh, I, I wonder what happens now. Trump said of the deal, it's, quote, the dawn of a new Middle East. I wonder what that new Middle East might look like for Palestinians and average income people of the region. Your thoughts? Well, I think that uh, in the end, it will... Uh have a negative effect on the Palestinians in the short term. Uh, But the Palestinians have already known for quite some time, I would argue since at least the early 80s, that they were not going to find salvation from the external Arab armies. You know, the the other, the Arab states had already begun to make peace. Two of the most important bordering states of Jordan and Egypt had already made peace with Israel. Uh, Besides Hezbollah in southern Lebanon and some rhetoric out of Syria, you know, there was really no one fighting Israel on their behalf. Uh, I say in the short term, this could hurt them because it will sort of take that Arab League two-state peace deal off the table, Mm -hmm. because why would Netanyahu bother to do that Mm -hmm. when he can normalize without it? Uh, However, uh, the optimist in me says that in the longer term, the Palestinians will realize once and for all that salvation will come from within and may uh, reorganize, hopefully as peacefully as possible, but potentially through armed resistance, a new sort of resistance to Israel that fights this apartheid, that that fights on the basis of human rights language. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're seeing a lot of that happening already in the West Bank and Gaza. And uh, I think the Palestinians are going to potentially realize that the Mandela ANC sort of model might be the most appropriate. And looking for salvation from Egypt or Saudi Arabia has long past lost its relevance. 
Interesting. Well, it's always good to talk to you. Dan, I'll tell you, dear listener, Danny Sherson is one of the most prolific writers. I can't believe how much stuff he puts out. What is the best way people can uh, follow your writings? Is it antiwar.com or what would you suggest? Tom Dispatch for that? Right. Matter? So, you know, I do a weekly column on antiwar.com and a bunch of other places, but the best place now to find my work is skepticalvet.com, my website, yeah. everything I publish comes up there and uh you know follow me at twitter at skeptical vet and uh but yeah skepticalvet.com will have all my uh articles as well as video and media appearances excellent thank you so much maybe someday there really will be peace in the mid-east could happen thank you again we'll talk to you uh no doubt fairly soon thanks thanks very much bert always glad to do it Palestine and lay down your weapons. 
Jesus This is for the innocent souls that went to heaven Cause what happened in America on 9-11 Happens in Palestine 24-7 Sing it free, free, Palestine 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 Free, free, Palestine